Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we discuss global biosecurity's critical role in preventing disease outbreaks. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the consequences of an uncontrolled virus, raising questions about the potential weaponization of viruses. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, Professor Malcolm Dando examines international regulations and the pressing need for global collaboration to secure our biosecurity. Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope we'll have a very informal session with a lot of question and and answer um, towards the end. Um, I'm a biologist by original training, um, but I worked on issues of arms control, particularly chemical and biological arms control, for about 30 years. Uh, I'm part of a informal but quite large group of academics in British universities who study this kind of issue. Uh, In fact, I'm on the train when we finish going down to Bath to meet up with a number of these um, other academics as we pursue our joint concerns and hopes in this particular area. However, uh, like many of you, for the last three years, we haven't seen much of each other apart from across the video screen. Um, But the fact that I was locked up uh, at home most of the time over that period meant that I I did get time to set aside some of the more technical work I do and ask myself the question, how could I present a short general overview of what's going on in this area to a more general audience. So um, this book uh, was published in uh, March and was my attempt to do that. However, uh, it was submitted to the publishers about this time last year. And there have been some very, very significant developments since I submitted the manuscript. So mainly what I'm going to talk about is from the basis of that manuscript, looking forward, uh, particularly taking up the the weird concatenation of circumstances which led to the ninth five-year review conference of the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention being held last December. And then, very, very unusually, the fourth, uh, sorry, fifth, um, review conference of the Chemical Weapons Convention being held only six months later in March of this year. So we had a situation where you could look and say, where are we at the present time in regard to dealing with with these particular issues? So if this can be made to work. What I want to talk about is biological security after the pandemic. I'd like, if I could, to talk for about 30 minutes. And I've done some visual stuff, so it makes it a bit bit easier for you to follow what what I'm talking about. If somewhere along the line, 
I appear to be completely and utterly <laughs> left field and not talking about things that you understand, please just put your finger up and, and ask me to explain a bit as we go along. But I hope we'll have plenty of time at the end to take up questions. Okay, so I've got a set of slides. I'll go through them. Um, they're in five sections. A very brief introduction for why this is important. Then uh, a brief look at the threat from chemical and biological weapons and the responses over the last century to try to deal with it. Then in section C, very briefly to show how advances in science and technology are considerably complicating this matter. A summary then of where we are at the present time in section D with the conventions and the operations of states and then finally, a plea for involvement of people. I think this situation is only going to be resolved when we have a high level of interaction from civil society around the world. Okay. So, these are official figures. I'm sure the actual figures are much higher, but according to the World Health Organization, about 7 million people around the world died from COVID. In the UK, over 200,000 people are known and uh, officially said to have died from COVID. Uh, these, as I say, I think are way uh, underestimating the true impact of uh, deaths. Um, there have been uh, some estimates which are much larger than these figures. And additionally, uh, you have the problem of long COVID, uh, an illness with, which is highly variable in the effects it has and the mechanisms producing it. So we're a long way from understanding uh, what is going on in long COVID. But I, I'm sure you pick up occasionally in the newspapers or on uh, the news uh, stories about people who've been affected by this. Uh, I think a couple of days ago there was a, a guy who was this absolutely really, really fit tr um, physical uh, training instructor who a year ago got COVID and has not worked since. So even the really, really fit can be affected by this illness. Um, I think to summarise, uh, COVID has enormous health effects, enormous societal effects, and enormous economic effects on our societies. So it's, this is important, and dealing with these kind of pandemics is really important. In 2018, just before the pandemic, the UK government produced its UK Biological Security Strategy. And you can see from this quote that the aim was to be able to cope with naturally occurring diseases, accidentally occurring diseases, and deliberate misuse of biological agents. So this, this strategy was aimed at dealing with all three of these possibilities. All three are important. If you can't deal with natural, 
you won't be able to deal with accidental. If you can't deal with accidental, you won't be able to deal with natural. And the same applies to deliberate as well. You have to have a coordinated strategy to deal with all of these things. Um, the pandemic inquiry has just begun. And uh, I think over the next few months, we're going to get a very good idea of how effectively the government implemented this strategy at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think the message is fairly clear that there's a lot that should be improved. And in fact, just earlier this month, a new UK biological security strategy was published. And it's easily available on the web. And you should have a good look at it because I think uh, there are things that we would like to see done to it, but as a step forward from 2018, I think it really is a good step forward. The part of uh, the problem that I want to deal with here is um, the issue of deliberate misuse of uh, biology in order to cause various kinds of diseases. This is a quote from Andy Reber, who's one of the real experts in this area. And what he's pointing out to us is two things. First of all, a deliberately caused disease could be much, much worse. And secondly, that there are indications that the taboo against using these weapons is breaking down. Think of the events in Syria with the use of chemical weapons and think of Salisbury and Malaysia with the use of chemical toxins, uh, nerve agents, for uh, assassination purposes. So we're in a fragile international situation anyway, but this is one area where we should give some real attention. Um, this is a quote from John Moon's uh, work on the US offensive program in the middle of the last century. And it gives you an idea of the kind of capabilities that were available to states even in the last century. So we, I use the United States because we know more about it than most others, and John's work is particularly good. But you can see that these, they were able to be fairly sure from the tests that they'd done that they could use Bacillus anthraxis as a biological weapon, a lethal one, or they could use um, Venezuelan equine elephantiasis as an incapacitating agent. And also, they could use toxins, uh, like um, saxitoxin, lethal, or staphylococcal enterotoxin B as an incapacitating agent. So, uh, somebody who wanted to go down this road now has got a whole history of the last century and major efforts by big states to be able to have these kind of weapons capabilities. In the First World War, we all know uh, that there, were there was massive use of chemical weapons. And we all know that the Geneva Protocol came about in 1925 in order to ban the use of such weapons 
in warfare. Not so many of us know that biological weapons were also used against the very valuable animal stocks, the horses that were so important for transport on both sides. And there were anti-animal uh, biological efforts made by both sides during the First World War. So the Polish delegation insisted that the Geneva Protocol covered not just chemical weapons, but biological weapons as well. The protocol is, is a very small document. Its implementation, is, there's no implementation in it, but it sets a kind of norm which is then developed during the rest of that century. The Biological Weapons Convention now, uh, it's usually called the Biological Weapons Convention, but note that its real name is the Biological and Toxins Weapons Convention. We'll come back to that a bit later on. But basically, this adds a whole series of other restrictions on top of the restriction in use. So you can't develop, produce, stockpile, or otherwise acquire or retain biological weapons, uh, biological agents, or toxins for other than peaceful purposes. So this is an absolutely sweeping ban on the misuse of biology. The Chemical Weapons Com Convention comes about then at the end of the Cold War. It's a much, much more complex uh, convention, but it has the same real sweeping uh, prohibition of the use of chemical agents for other than peaceful purposes. And it's also backed up by uh, a series of schedules of agents which were used to verifiably get rid of the huge offensive lethal agents which were built up by both sides during the Cold War. In fact, in September of this year, the last verifiable destruction will take place in the United States and we'll know that all of those horrible weapon systems are now no longer in existence. And that is a, something that's up, happened over a, a very, very short period of time and shows what can be done if people really want to do it. Just to be clear, the World Health Organization in 2004 pointed out that scientists call toxins toxins, but the conventions call toxins uh, toxins and normal bioregulators within the body used in abnormal ways as toxins as well. So if uh, somebody was to use a normal bioregulator in your body in an abnormal way to attack you, the conventions would call that a toxin and say it was banned. Okay. And as the little bit at the end say, says, remember that wasp venom has histamine in it, which is a normal bioregulator of your body, but if used by the wasp, it's a toxin. And therefore, people like me go around in their bag during the summer with two EpiPens, just in case uh, I get stung by a wasp or a bee 
and get really, I've had a couple of really quite bad <laughs> reactions to, to stings. So I, I really am serious in keeping those with me. To summarize then, the biological threat and response spectrum, what you have is a whole series of different kinds of agents in the columns. And you can see that the Chemical Weapons Convention basically goes to cover from classical chemical weapons right the way through to the end of toxins. And the Biological Weapons Convention goes all the way from classical biological agents what, all through to bioregulators. So what you see then is what's thought to be a comprehensive coverage with both conventions covering these mid-spectrum agents of toxins and bioregulators. So, turning then to the science and technology, I think all of us reading our papers today are not surprised when we find that somebody has taken stem cells and produced uh, beginning stages of embryo development of humans. Uh, all kinds of stories like that about the impact of our advancing knowledge of living systems. But some people saw this much, much earlier than, than most of us did. And this is Matt Meselson, uh, professor of molecular biology at Harvard, at the turn of the century, pointing out that chemical and biological agents, yes, at that stage, we could use them to kill or to disable. But as our knowledge increases, all kinds of different manipulations will become available over this century. And all of those manipulations might be intended for benign purposes, but some of them could be used for malign purposes. So it was a warning that Matt made, you know, under the title of averting the hostile exploitation of biotechnology. And pretty soon after Matt put that out, a group of uh, American um, strategic analysts pointed out the implications very, very clearly because they said, at the moment, biological agents uh, have been weaponized because we knew that anthrax was deadly. It was a matter then of taking anthrax and seeing if we could manipulate it so that we could spread it in an aerosol. So it was a manipulation of a natural event. But what is now becoming possible, according to these analysts, and I think they're correct, is that you could understand a particular target in a living organism and then rationally design an agent to attack that. So if, if that is increasingly the case, there's a multitude of new possible agents and trying to defend against a multitude of novel agents becomes increasingly impossible. So that the defense against the old classical agents will be break, broken down as it has to cope with more and more difficult agents. And there's one more twist to this. This is um, 
Julian Perry Robinson, who for years was the duan of, of uh, the UK uh, academic um, group in this uh, area. And Julian, unfortunately, de de died during the COVID pandemic of COVID. But what Julian is trying to say here is, yes, it's dreadful that these agents could be used as weapons of mass destruction. But actually, that's not really the main difficulty they cause. Because as they could be used in very specific ways for diverse purposes, then there are lots of other ways in which the norm against these could be broken down by people with other kinds of, of interest in hostile applications of this kind of technology. So <clears throat> that's where we were with the weapon systems. Briefly then with the conventions, um, UNIDIR, the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, in the beginning of last year, set out a possible range of outcomes of the review conference, big five-year review conference. And what they argued, basically, was that if we eventually come up and agreed pretty much what we'd been trying to do for the last 20-odd years, since the 1990s effort to produce a verification protocol for this convention broke down in 2001, we've been basically stalemate. We haven't been able to make very much progress. And what Unidir was saying was, if that's what we get this time to carry on trying to do what we've done before, it actually is a, an approach of diminishing value at this level of state developments. And that's exactly what happened. And for the re review conference in May, um, again, UNIDIR produced a report saying, here's the range of outcome. In 2018, at the last review conference, all they were able to do was to agree a chairman's report that the chairman could say what had been discussed, but no consensus. And that's, again, exactly what happened in May. So the Chemical Weapons Convention is much stronger uh, convention than the Biological Weapons Convention, has now finished its destruction phase of getting rid of all of the lethal chemical weapon stocks of the last century, but is unable to reorientate itself to begin to do what we want the Biological Weapons Convention to do as well, to cope with the massive changes in science and te technology and the kind of implications that has for new weapon systems. So, in short, the current situation, Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, weak, small organizations, inadequate verifications, stalemate since the late 1990s, progress in dealing with the biotechnology revolution, likely to remain very slow. Chemical Weapons Convention, stronger than the BTWC, 
large organization in The Hague, very good weapon, uh, verification system for getting rid of those weapons from the last century. Having to resort to majority voting rather than con consensus to move forward on things like Syria or things like the use of aerosolized CNS acting chemicals like the fentanyl that was used to break the Moscow theater siege couldn't get consensus that that kind of thing is too dangerous to, to go on. So, has the ability to carry out his present functions, but his present functions are declining, and only very slow progress in dealing with the impact of the biotechnology revolution. So, my feeling is that what we need now is an injection of civil society. And this is perfectly logical and reasonable because for many years now, in this area, there's been a concept called the web of prevention, an understanding that state action and state level conventions are not enough. What now needs to be done is to build up supporting policies and, and mechanisms to help deal with preventing this kind of new technology being misused for very de destructive purposes. So the things like export controls, development of oversight systems so that we don't have people mucking around with dangerous experiments uh, on potentially pandemic pathogens. All of those kinds of things have got to be strengthened and put in place as we hope eventually the, the international system is developed. One area which is of particular interest is the scientists who are carrying out this benignly intended revolution and who have the kind of knowledge and expertise that would be very important in helping to strengthen these conventions. And the uh, World Health Organization last year published its global guidance framework for the responsible use of life sciences, mitigating bio-risks and governing dual-use research. Available free on the web uh, and really worth looking at as the international organization dealing with health, trying to say, this is the kind of framework we need to think about. And within that, they point out, as some of us have known from other reports for quite a long time, there's a fundamental problem, and that is that the scientists developing the biotechnology revolution rarely have any understanding of the possibility that their work will be misused in hostile offensive programs. And they have no, very, very little knowledge of the history of the offensive programs of the last century. Even though those offensive programs have been written up by really competent people, uh, and we know a lot about it. Even about, there's a huge book by Ray Zelinkas and Milton Leitenberg on the Soviet offensive programs. It's about that thick. 
published by Harvard University Press. And you know, we have that kind of detail available. In response, the conventions have been trying to think about how to interact better with the scientists. And you may recall that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015 for its work on getting rid of those offensive, uh, lethal chemical weapon stocks. But also, in cooperation with sciences, they agreed the Hague Ethical Guidelines for Chemists. And these are guidelines to help people think about appropriate codes of conduct for scientists to work. Um, and the elements you can see, awareness and engagement, sustainability, ethics, education, safety and security. And because the organization is big and quite rich, um, they also, along with their scientific advisory board, they set up an advisory board on education and outreach to facilitate the implementation of these kind of guidelines and the education to uh, go with it. I might say that much longer ago than that, the International Atomic Energy Agency set up and has organized an international nuclear security education network to develop appropriate safety education and security education for nuclear scientists. And that's been very well funded for a couple of decades by the IAEA. <clears throat> Within the Biological Weapons Convention, there have been discussions of codes of conduct since about 2005. And these have recently been brought to a conclusion by particularly very extensive work by China, backed up by America. So China and America, in this particular regard, were very influential in, in helping to develop the Tianjin, which is a Chinese university north of Beijing, Tianjin Ethical Guidelines for Life Scientists to go along with the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. These have not yet been integrated into the convention, but they've certainly been presented to the convention and endorsed by the Inter-Academy Panel of National Scientific uh, Associations. So you can see the Tianjin guidelines develop much further than the uh, Hague ethical guidelines, building on what, on what the Hague guidelines were. Tianjin goes much further forward, much more complicated. And you can see here that in the Tianjin guidelines, there's an extensive statement about what kind of educational capabilities and awareness raising capabilities should be made available under codes of conduct for life scientists so that that gap that the WHO pointed out is gradually, or hopefully rapidly, um, closed. So, we uh, did a survey of what 
biosecurity education projects had been carried out for life scientists over the last two decades. And on the positive side, it was quite clear that a large number of academics in different parts of the world had carried out projects in this area. So there was expertise and experience around the world. Not very extensive, uh, not very sustainable, but it was there. Uh, unfortunately, there's a big problem, and that is that almost all of the work was carried out using the English language. So the other five UN languages very rarely have anything available on biosecurity education for life scientists. And it seemed to us that there would be a need for really many more resources to be put into this area and for a lot more imagination to be applied. So, just for instance, um, if you um, try to write uh, a lecture course uh, or a series of articles for people in this area, then you end up with horrendous translation problems if you want to get them even into the six UN languages. But if you use cartoons, and you're very careful about how you use the cartoons, then the amount of translation necessary is very small. It's a bit te technical because the, the, um, the, the languages don't always translate to fit into the balloons. <laughs> so so is, you had, we had to work with professional translators to get it done. But eventually, um, with no cost on translation, because we got friends in different countries to do the translations, uh, we ended up with a cartoon series. Um, each cartoon has got uh, two pages, uh, and as you can see, several lines. Um, and there are five different sets of cartoons, all in 12 languages, all with very diverse characters. Um, so the language problem, you can get some way with. What we're involved in at the moment, again, in this is using um, colleagues from around the world, is to try to produce a, a resource book for teachers who want to incorporate this kind of material into their university lectures or into their school um, teaching. Um, so we've got, as you can see, five sections. Um, there are about 20 um, chapters. Diverse, all around the world, people writing them but under the instruction that there's no longer, no longer than 5,000 words in each chapter, and no more than about five references. So the references have got to be key so that they lead people into the key uh, literature, but it's got to be 5,000 words so that um, we've got some hope of at reasonable cost translating these into at least the five UN languages. Um, the, all of the draft chapters should be on our desks 
uh, by the end of this month, we've got most of them, uh, then the uh, authors have got about a month to tidy them up, and then they go to Wiley that's going to produce it, and we hope to have this out before this time next year and available. And we've been gazumped, fortunately, because all of a sudden, um, the World Health Organization, having produced its framework uh, last year, put this out as uh, an advert for uh, this work to be done. WH tra uh, World Health Organization training on responsible use of the life sciences and dual use research. External consultant required for six months to contribute to the development of an online training course on the responsible use of life sciences and dual use research. Deliverable one, development of the draft context of the training course by the end of August. Now, there have been other online uh, courses. Uh, my colleague Simon Whitby, for instance, uh, uh, produced one about 10 years back. Uh, but with the World Health Organization producing it, then you've got some weight behind it and some hope that this is going to have an impact. So to end uh, what is in some ways a somewhat sorry story, uh, it looks as if the pandemic has had an impact at least at the level of the World Health Organization. So the two conventions are still tangled up in difficulties, but with the weight of the WHO producing, first of all, its global framework, and now its online course, um, you've got the possibility that um, this kind of effort will increase quite rapidly. And if you look, going back to the beginning, if you look at the new UK biosecurity strategy published this month, you'll find that there's a lot more in it. Uh, and it looks a lot more in implementable to me than the 2018 version. And certainly, uh, as I was um, waiting for you to come, I was, uh, I was reading an email from colleagues in Cambridge uh, commenting on the new strategy and saying that this, okay, it's not everything we want, but this looks as though it's going in the right direction. Okay, that, that's me um, finished. I'm sorry, probably a bit longer than I intended, but hopefully useful. I'm very happy to take any questions. A simple question that, uh, that if the biological weapons were designed with a particular purpose, you say attacking particular people or, or, and that sort of thing, would these biological weapons then mutate? And a bit like COVID, you wouldn't know how they were going to mutate. You know, the big debate that's going on at the moment among scientists is was COVID a natural outbreak or was COVID... Uh, a lab leak. Were the scientists, I mean, look, nobody's saying this is a deliberate thing. The, the argument is 
Is this natural? Or were the scientists in Wuhan with US money carrying out research on COVID with the benign intention of trying to see what kind of mutation might be very dangerous and how we might deal with that very dangerous mutation. Now, good scientists that I've worked with say that's not the way forward. We shouldn't be doing that. It's far too dangerous. There are other ways we can deal with um, outbreaks, novel outbreaks. Um, we, we shouldn't be deliberately creating these things. But you're certainly right that it could be that somebody could create something and it would be novel and we would then be confronted with something like COVID again. Yeah. I hope not. But, uh, so. 1918, the f this terrible strain of flu started in a pig farm in Iowa, somehow got onto a US troop ship, led to 55 million deaths worldwide, 250,000 in this country, in terms of excess death levels. Um, and then we, we, we haven't, hadn't got a clue then or planned really how to make sure that didn't happen again. Uh, COVID happened possibly in a, uh, either lab, lab escape or, from, or naturally occurring in a food market. And uh, how are we going to actually prevent these big pandemics spreading next time? Well, the, the 1918 flu, we didn't stop. I mean, it, it went by wildfire through the human population because we didn't have the kind of medical capabilities we have now. If you look back to previous plagues, what they tended to do <coughs> was have an outbreak and then a gap and then another outbreak. So what I would imagine was happening in those ancient plagues was that there was a mutation which had a particular effect, ran through the population and hit the people it could, and then died down. But then another mutation occurred, and up it came again. So that's the kind of characteristics you saw in, in earlier um, big pandemics. I think with COVID, because of the, the advances in, in medical science, we were able to contain it much better than we were in 2018. But at still at an enormous cost. And I think, you know, that would be the hope that we were very, if you look at the UK biological security strategy for this year, they say quite clearly that we can expect another pandemic. They're, because human beings are, uh, the human population is expanding and it's expanding into areas where the human population didn't very often go in large numbers. And therefore you're encountering new possible. Most of these um, agents, natural outbreaks, come from what are called zoonoses. These are uh, 
pathogens that infect other animals and then find an opportunistic way to jump across to us. Uh, and so, for instance, the more we penetrate down into Laos and places like that, where all the bats are, um, there's the possibility that we pick up something like that. Two questions, actually. How do you account for this divergence between the willingness to address the risks of chemical warfare compared to the risks of biological warfare? Uh, both of them are weapons against people rather than property. You know, why is one being addressed with gr much greater urgency than the other? And then the other question was, we've seen how shoddy this country's defences are against an airborne pathogen. Um, the, a lot of the potential weapons, biological weapons that might be used are also airborne. Um, why, why, why is the so little, is there any urgency seen now to developing our defences against biological weapons in this country? Um. Answers to the first question, remember back to the end of the Cold War, a period of possible detente, uh, possible international cooperation, and both sides know that they've got huge, huge stocks of these horribly dangerous chemicals, either in weapons or ready for weaponization. And it's a point where the chemical industry, having been battered by environmentalists for its lack of safety and concern, has all of a sudden got in its head safety, chemical safety is really, really important. So it's particularly interesting if you look at the American Chemical Society and the impact it had on the negotiations of the Chemical Weapons Convention in this golden period where we had. And so you had a, a situation where the cooperation was possible. Both sides realised that they had to do something about this horrendous amount of material that had built up. And the chemical industry had an interest in having a shiny face to the world. Um, so you had incredible... Um, situation where you had permanent inspectors in Russia from the West, permanent inspectors from Russia in the United States, making sure that all of the stuff was verifiably destroyed. And this stuff was really, really dangerous. You know, the, the poor lady who died in Sainsbury, in Salisbury, uh, Sainsbury, <laughs> Salisbury, uh, you know, just a little um, capsule, or, um, it, what was it, a perfume bottle? Um, whether they opened the perfume bottle or it was just on the side, left by those Russian terrorists. So a perfect example of a concatenation of circumstances where something was done very, very rapidly and very successfully. I would, um, on your second question, I would urge you to read the UK biological security strategy from the government um, and probably see if you can easily find 
some of the, um, if you have difficulty, send me an email. Um, one or two of the commentaries being made, particularly by um, Lord Reese's group in Cambridge, uh, and see what they're saying about what they like about it and what they want more. I think what they're saying is this all looks very good, but we want some milestones. We, we want to know what's going to be done and when it's going to be done, uh, as, a, as an example. Thank you. Um, I just wondered if you could give us some sense of um, how much contact you have as a Western scientist or the, the Western scientific community has with the non-Western uh, scientific community and what's the level of cooperation or transparency that you you're able to enjoy at the moment I'm not even trying to talk to my friends in in Russia I, I, no, I just it's to send an email to somebody in Russia would not be very helpful from their point of view at the moment um, China um, the Book. We're doing the biological research uh, book. It's one of the co-editors is uh, is uh, ethnically Chinese, but he works in London, and the other one is ethnically Chinese, but he works in Tianjin. <laughs> so, so yep, um, Japan, very very long-term connections with Japan, um, Philippines places like that. Uh, the way that this comes about is that um, if you go, to, NGOs are allowed to go to almost all of the meetings uh, of the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. It's very easy um, to then to talk. All of the uh, big delegations will have scientists attached to them and they won't just be um, official scientists, there, there will be other um, academic scientists attached. So it's very easy to get to talk to people and make contacts. Uh, so uh, in my own case, um, about 20 years ago, a friend of mine um, from Exeter and I leapt into one of those golden uh, grants where um, we were going around the world um, interviewing scientists about these kind of issues um, at the grant people's expense. And the method that we developed was to write to um, the head of some bio department, some big university department, and say, um, we'd like to come and do your weekly seminar. Um, and we've got all the money necessary to, <laughs> so could, could we come? Which meant, you know, some poor guy who was organising the seminars could say, tick, I don't have to worry about that. So, yeah, we've got lots of contacts around the world. Hi there, hi. Um, I have MA in Middle East Politics, Security and Studies. I was a PISA student, University of Bradford. Uh, I have a couple of questions, very quick question. Uh, do you think the definition of security, our approach to security, has changed because of the changes we see? Um, climate change is a big issue. Water security, there was a session yesterday about that. 
and uh, also equality. Do you think when we think of security, we're thinking of other things. We don't think about extremism anymore uh, caused by ideology. We're thinking about econo uh, eco um, economic socio socio oh, um, factors. Uh, Omar Jirai from Iran, my second question. Uh, nuclear weapon has always been controversial. I've never supported Iran to have nuclear weapon because it's an oppressive regime. And I don't see any benefit for Iranian people to have their regime being equipped by, uh, with a nuclear weapon. Uh, what is your, do you think Iran could be a threat in terms of biosecurity? Can go that way to cause trouble using bio weapons? Thank you. Thanks. On the first question, of course, security is much bigger uh, than it used to be. The security used to mean weapon systems, but I think both academia and uh, civil society understand that security is much, much wider than that. Uh, but still, in the middle, the weapons uh, and dealing with them are an essential issue that we have to confront. Iran, um, Iran has uh, a very, very good uh, bio-academia uh, and industry. I know this because um, something completely different that we published uh, last year was a, a big book um, that we looked at toxins and bioregulators, and whether the conventions actually overlapped in controlling them, or whether there was a gap. And we did that by setting up a framework of questions about uh, a country, and asking those questions uh, with the idea of, would those questions lead you to have confidence in the compliance of the particular question, uh, country. And one of the country case studies we looked at, of course, was Iran uh, and big question marks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.